Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. Hey everybody, welcome to Dr. Drew Podcast. Uh, as usual, please keep the wind in the sails of the Corolla Pirate Ship and support those that support us here. We try to carefully select these guys, so we appreciate it. And uh, check all the other pods at drdrew.com. I appreciate you guys going by there. And uh, people seem to like After Dark, so I might want to check that one out. It's my privilege to welcome uh, Dr. Judd Brewer today. Uh, the book is called The Craving Mind, From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love, Why We Get Hooked and How We Can Break Bad Habits. An app, Unwinding Anxiety. The um, Again, of course, the book is available at Amazon usual places. And the eating app is called? Eat Right Now. Eat Right Now. Uh, also at App Store and Google Play. And a, a new study found it to be is the Unwinding Anxiety, I guess, to be one of the two most effective apps in this category? Yeah. That's awesome. What's what's on that app? Uh, it's basically a way to help people understand their minds and how they get caught up in habitual uh, patterns of anxiety. And is how, it sort of a CBT in your hand kind of thing? Like a, uh, It's not CBT. It's it's more mindfulness training. And, mindfulness. Yeah. Excellent. And how's that? How's it differ from you know some of these other apps that are sort of meditative and that sort of thing? Uh, it's based on science. <laughs> That's where it starts. We spent twenty years doing the research to figure out, you know, what it is about how our minds work. And the other piece that we found is there's been about you know fifty years where folks have been really focusing on willpower as a way to change behaviors mm-hmm. from everything. And and the truth is that willpower is more myth than muscle. Yeah. And so we're really diving in through the neural mechanism piece and how does the brain actually work and how can we target that specifically? And mindfulness seems to be one of the effective ways to do it. And again, so it. I can help people understand what they're going to get from the app, what makes yeah. it different from the meditative apps that people <laughs> seem to go gravitating for. Right. Towards. So we uh, we give people step-by-step training, 10 minutes a day, that really helps them understand their own minds um, from, a, from a direct experiential perspective and then take practices that they build right into their everyday lives. So it's not like – Hey, if you're anxious, sit down and meditate. It's about, hey, if you're anxious, let's really dig into that, understand where it is, and then um, then be able to work with it in that moment. Is it is it sort of like a? I, I'm just trying to understand. What, is it is, is it a practice, like a habit? A bit. It make, I mean, wait, was it your voice coming back to them? How's it, how's it work? <laughs> it's well, we use videos and in the moment exercises to really train them that uh, in terms like, of how like, their minds work. Like, give me an example. I'm I'm anxious right now. What what will what will my first sort of exercise be? Yeah. Well, in day one, we start with just helping you understand your mind. I think of this as like step one: is can you see you know what triggers anxiety? What are the habitual patterns that you go to? A lot of people go to worry, so they're trying to you know their mind is trying to get in control. And then look at what's the what's the result of that worry. And that behavior result relationship is really important because that's what drives habitual behavior. It's not actually the behavior itself. It's the reinforcers? Yeah. Yeah. And so if we want to change behavior, we don't go at the behavior itself. We look at the reinforcers. And awareness can actually help us see how unreinforcing these old behaviors actually are. Like worry huh. doesn't actually fix much. Right. It? No, right. In fact, uh, what, what it occurs to me is that Phobias sort of go into that same mode yep. too, right? Totally. Uh, and it's it's a funny. I had a very conscious experience with fear of flying myself, <laughs> where I flew once on somebody's plane, where, where it was so beautiful. I like had no anxiety, mm-hmm. and it was then I had a conscious experience of oh, I can do this without anxiety, and there it was it gone. Like it was 
It was like, but I had to experience it though first. You totally have to experience yeah. it. And that's, that's the other piece where the mindfulness comes in and it helps us bring in that direct experience where we can see, like with anxiety in particular, we're so identified with those thoughts, we can't imagine that we are anything different. You know, for example, I had an early pilot test of our program who wrote me an email saying, I'm so identified with my anxiety. I feel like it is etched, deeply etched in my bones. Mm-hmm. And what they can start to realize is no, these are thoughts, these are physical sensations associated with this, you know, taking these things personally and that we don't have to take them personally. Is, is, was that person saying that they it's part of their personality and they didn't they, they felt they were going to change too much or something? Uh, no, they just felt like they didn't see a way out, mm. that it was so much embedded in who they were. Mm. And the, lo and behold, we can find a way out. We've had people be able to overcome full-blown panic attacks seeing that these are physical sensations. Well, that was good. My other question was, does panic fit into this as well? Exactly. Yeah. It absolutely does. And we know, you know panic attacks can be problematic, but panic disorder is when we start worrying about having our next panic attack. Oh, yeah. I've been there. Yeah, so. I, I had panic when I was in college. And was mistreated completely, and then I ended up having very high generalized anxiety because I was in fear of the next panic attack. Yeah, yeah. You know, I had it during residency training. Mm-hmm. It's good times. It's fantastic. <laughs> Absolutely, it's, it's so fun. And then the eating, eating the eat right now eat program. Right now. Yeah, uh, same principles where you know we learn to eat because we're stressed, not because we're hungry. Uh, these old, you know, these ancient brain mechanisms, think of it as caveman brain, which was there to help us survive, help us remember where food is. Now, in modern day, when everybody has a refrigerator and, a, you know, food delivery, mm-hmm. um, we've learned to start to eat when we're stressed. We learn to eat when we're bored. We learn to eat when we're lonely. And so that habit loop gets set up that just is really hard to break. So we can help people pay attention and see, well, what do I actually get from overeating? What do I get from eating when I'm stressed? What do I get from eating junk food as compared to healthy food? Mm-hmm. That we can start to break that cause and effect relationship when our brain starts to see how unrewarding that is. And then we can also bring in what I think of as the bigger, better offer um, of, of awareness, of curiosity, of mindfulness itself. To explain that last part. So there's a part of our brain called the orbitofrontal cortex that actually stores and uh, and determines this hierarchy of reward value. So, for example, you know, if I eat broccoli versus milk chocolate, my brain's going to say, "Okay, milk chocolate." And then for me, dark chocolate definitely high up on the hierarchy. Hmm. So, if given a choice, you know, milk chocolate, dark chocolate, it's going to eat dark chocolate. And we can do the same thing. We're helping it see, okay, what if I overeat versus just eat the right amount? What is that like? And the hierarchy starts to develop when we pay attention and see, oh, overeating doesn't feel as good as actually stopping when I'm full. If you become conscious of what you're doing. Totally. We have to become conscious. That's the key. Is the orbital frontal the conscious generating piece or is it the valence generating piece it's more the reward piece so it's saying okay that's worth x number of points versus you know y is worth it sounds sort of like a deeper structure like the amygdala or something doing that yeah it's i mean they're all they're all related but this one is is seemed to be most consistently uh associated with reward value itself just a total sidebar. I, I've gotten preoccupied lately with the uh, insular cortex. Yeah, because uh, it really, to me, what I'm learning, what I'm, what's coming into focus, both in the literature and I guess in my own mind about it, is that that's the zone that gives you the feeling of feeling. 
Yeah, it's, like in, what it, it's, it's almost the qualia. It's like what it's like or in, yeah. in the insular cortex, right? Yeah, and in particular, people have been zooming in on what's described as intraceptive awareness, as in exactly. what does it feel it, like to yes. feel. And they're, they're connecting it to the spinothalamic system and stuff. But I, I, I feel like there's a big story to be told there, no? There is a big story to be told on a number of fronts. Uh, looking at this with related to mindfulness practice, there have been a number of studies showing that the insular cortex is more activated when people are, especially the posterior insular okay, cortex. Okay, so we had to tell you, it's got two poles to it, yeah. and they're different, and the middle's different than the poles. And it's, <laughs> yeah. But it, but it is, in a way, it's kind of weirdly constructed like the homunculus on our on our motor and, and sensory cortices, right? That's the way it's described, kind of. And, and Kind of, yeah. Yeah, so the posterior insula seems to be associated with more just raw intraceptive awareness. More holistic kind of, yeah. like, I have my gut, whatever. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And as you march toward the front or toward the anterior insula, this is where uh, we start relating to those sensations. So we bring like in... I'm feeling this. Yeah, exactly. And how does this relate to previous feelings? And is this good? Is this bad? And all that and, stuff. And, it, and that's structurally kind of near the orbital frontal system, isn't it? It? It's uh, it's in the same area because I always felt like the oral frontal brought in the outside world into some of those interoceptive experiences. It is certainly a crossroad with regard to all of those. The insula, yeah. you know, the literal translation of that is island. So it's kind of this island between these different lobes of the brain. So interesting. Yeah, totally. That, that's the future, right? Isn't it? It really is. Once we start to understand this crazy yeah. orbit of ours. Yeah. I'm sure. Okay. So, but but your your focus is is I'm, I, it's mindfulness, but it's also on breaking reinforcers, right? Isn't it? Yeah, and yeah. those go hand in hand. So if you think of how reinforcement learning works, this caveman brain of ours needs basically just three basic elements. Well, let's, let's drill into that a little bit. Do you mean the reward system? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The reward system. From yeah. a behavioral standpoint, we need a trigger, a behavior, and a reward. So if yeah. you see food, you eat the food. That's the behavior. Then you get this dopamine signal to your brain that says, "Remember what you ate and where you found it." So it's actually set up. Reinforcement learning is set up to help us remember where food is. Uh. Same is true for avoiding danger. You know, you see the danger, you run away, and then the reward is you don't get eaten. Are you explicitly bringing memory in here? Is that what you mean by remember? Well, it's or do you mean just sort of a no? I, like there's a faint sense that's rewarding. I guess that's memory. There is it, it, the more explicit it is, the more quickly we learn things. So the more we line up a specific behavior with a certain result or reward, the more likely our brain is to say, "Okay, do that again," or "Don't do that again." So yeah, very explicit in terms of cause okay. and effect. Okay, and that's actually what drives behavior. You know, there's this idea that you know, if I'd want to change behavior, I focus on the behavior. I think that's where a lot of uh, cognitive therapies and and things like that have focused. But if you look at reinforcement learning, reward-based learning is based on reward, not on yeah. the behavior itself. Yeah. So we focus on the reward. And this is where mindfulness comes in is you can start to help us see very, very clearly what did I just do and what's the actual result. And when we bring awareness in, we can our orbital frontal cortex gets accurate and updated information that says, okay, this is rewarding or this isn't. I'll, I'll give you an example uh, in our smoking program. So we did a study where we got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. Mm. We're like, okay, what's going on here? And we found that you know if if we bring people in and have them pay attention as they smoke, they realize that smoking actually doesn't taste very good. Right. And so that reward value drops. And we had a guy. Do they focus on taste only or just whatever? Oh, everything. Yeah. You yeah. know, taste, smell, yeah. um, feeling in their lungs. You know, a lot of them describe that there's this burning feeling that goes uh, in, which they kind throat. of convert into a reinforcer. Some of the, some people. Well, they're not paying attention. Yeah. And so the reinforcing quality is that their dopamine, you know, is their dopamine receptors are basically screaming 
looking for uh, nicotine to say, hey, tickle me, tickle me, tickle me. And so, you know, that piece supersedes the actual direct experience. And so they get that dopamine hit and their brain says, you know, don't worry about this other stuff. Just do that again. <laughs> Just do that again. Yeah, it's like cocaine. Yes, it is very much yeah. like cocaine. Is, is it the shell of the nucleus accumbens where this is all going on or is it some other region there? It depends on if you're talking mouse or man. Uh, so in mice, we talk about the shell and the core of the yeah. nucleus accumbens. And I don't know the difference. Tell me more. Well, in humans, the anatomy is more related to things like the nucleus accumbens, the putamen, the um, and other, you know, like anterior and and posterior. So it's a it's a different. It's not a shell so much as a anterior to posterior configuration. Yeah, which is interesting. It's sort of <clears throat> I guess that's what we're seeing more and more of. As we get to know the brain, right? That's yeah. Sort of anterior posterior. It, does that correlate with some sort of evolutionary progress? You know, that's above my pay grade. But <laughs> it must, the, right? Yeah. The bottom line yeah. is probably. Yeah. In some way it does. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so where is there a particular region? Just so I, for listeners, nucleus accumbens is sort of the – I think of it as the final pathway in reward. It's like – it's a, I call it the do it again part of the brain. Yeah. It's part of the brain. It's, I'm not – because people always go, oh, you get this pleasurable response. I'm not sure you feel anything when the nucleus accumbens is triggered. I just, except do that again. I am so glad you say that because yeah. every there's this myth that – Dopamine feels good. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think it's, there's a, unless there's an opioid component. It doesn't really feel that good. So there are opioid receptors in the nucleus accumbens, but when somebody takes cocaine, for example, yeah. and my patients describe this all the time, yeah. they're not talking about pleasure. They're talking about they're they're feeling restless. They're feeling on edge. They're feeling driven, and often they're feeling paranoid. Yeah. Well, where's the pleasure in that? Oh, and the worst, and they know intellectually they're going <laughs> to get psychotic, yeah, and do. yet they don't stop until they are completely psychotic. Yeah, they can't. And they can't. Yeah, because the do it again thing. It's, it's the best example I know of of this reward thing we're talking about. Yeah. So I cocaine, think but crack particularly. It's yeah. Just, they just. It just starts and goes until the end. Well, crack is interesting because your our lungs are at this amazing delivery vehicle for drugs. Such, such a huge surface area. Yeah, so you can get this huge spike and, in and blood goes, levels. And, and the other thing, it goes well. Forget the blood, not just the blood levels, but there's no pass through. It goes directly from the lungs to your brain. It has one. It's like inhaled brain. That's it. You know, it, it's not going anywhere else. Yeah. And uh, and thus it has these extra physiological effects. Can you with these mindful? Is mindfulness the right word for this? What you do? Yes. Okay. Are these because it feels like I get why you would call it mindful because it is bringing to mind literally everything. Yeah. But it has a different connotation because mindfulness has a whole history. <laughs> yeah. So right? I think we can actually simplify it by saying, well, what are, what are we actually talking about? We can talk yeah. about awareness. Yeah. So bringing awareness in a way that we're not biased. So we're yeah. not saying, oh, I'm aware of that and that sucks or that's great. We're just bringing awareness and really asking, well, how rewarding is this So that's actually? the mindful part. Yeah. yeah. And um, – can crack be affected with this awareness stuff? Our first studies were done with alcohol and cocaine dependence. Yeah. We found that mindfulness but, is as good as gold standard treatment. But crack? Uh, most of the folks in that study were addicted to crack cocaine. Okay. And, and then how do you keep them sober once they get there? <laughs> so that's another interesting piece. So two pieces of this, of the orbital frontal cortex. One, it stores reward value. So if we can help it see something isn't very rewarding, mm -hmm. like smoking or overeating or being caught up in a, in a worry loop, that reward value drops and then it opens up the door for some, you know, for that bigger, better offer. We can bring in that bigger, better offer through curious awareness itself. Hmm. So, you know, if people really check in, what feels better, craving or curiosity? Curiosity feels better. 
So we can actually use curiosity as a way to replace that craving that says, do this again, do this again with, oh, what does that craving actually feel like? And it can flip the valence right in that moment and help people not only be with cravings and ride them out, but also realize they actually have something inherent in them right, you know, that's always available that actually feels pretty good. Does the interpersonal figure into that? Because that's, it seems like, again, the orbital frontal can access some of those sorts of interpersonal regulators, at least. What do you mean by interpersonal? Uh, another, just have another human available. Oh, yeah, I think connection is actually critical. Oh, that's the kind of the word. I, I, I always thought the orbital frontal really helped us with connection or, or gave us connection. I don't know if we know exactly, certainly at least I don't know all of the nuances of that interpersonal yeah, connection. Yeah, it's probably many levels. Of yeah, and I think a lot of it has kind of been reworked. You know, there was this yeah. whole mirror neuron hypothesis yeah. that hasn't been replicated yeah. very well. And so I think people are really uh, revisiting that to see what's going on. But one thing we do know, you know, if you think of craving as this contracted, closed down state, when we're curious, that we're more open, we're, um, we're expanded. And when we're connected with others, we also feel that expanded yeah. quality of experience. And the expansion versus contraction, expansion feels better. The, the world I came from, we would use craving as a motivator to make the connection. Ah, yeah. Because I would always – because the patients we did the worst with were the ones without cravings because they thought they were fine. Yeah. And they weren't motivated to make the connection. The craving ones were like, I am going to use if I don't do something. Here's what you do. They do it. They can regulate the cravings then. That's a really nice way to channel that that energy from the craving. Yeah, yeah. That's why when the whole addiction field started measuring cravings, I was like, I, you guys – I." Not yeah. it depends what you're going to do with it. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, and I think people just think, oh, if we can just delete the craving, oh, we're they'll stop win. using. It's like, no, <laughs> yeah. you actually no. work with people. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, no. Yeah, that that staying sober part is is always the hard. Well, not always the hardest, but is a key problem. Yeah. So if people become less enchanted, let's say, with these old behaviors, they're less likely to relapse to them. This is where memory comes back in. I don't know if any of your patients, you know, one of my patients taught me this term, play the tape forward, hmm. where he would say, that's you know, that's an old recovery saying. Yeah, yeah. So when play he would- Play tape out, they'd say. Oh, yeah. what was it? Tape out? Tape, play, play it out. Like play it play out. out. Yeah. yeah. So this guy, he was he was struggling with alcohol use disorder. Yeah. And so he'd be thinking, well, if I have this drink, what am I going to do? I'm going right. to have another drink and then I'm going to have another right. and then I'm going to be in the but, gutter. But they're, then, they're frontal, if it's too soon, early in their sobriety, that frontal function isn't there. Yeah. They can't play it out. Yeah, they can't. So yeah. that's where we can actually step into that process in terms of, well, directly play it out right now. Mm. Like, what's it feel like now oh, when you have that strong craving? Yeah, yeah. And can we actually, you know, in this moment, work with that craving right there, take that energy and, um, you know, subvert the dominant paradigm with curiosity itself? What do you – I want to pick your brain a little bit about this. It just, it just feels like we have a lot of work to do on the autonomic nervous system. Mm-hmm. We, really, we really don't know how it's organized. Really. Yeah, we don't. I yeah. certainly don't. Uh, we don't know the parasympathetic. But then I, mean, I learned something these, in medical it's school. It's just these weird where, and I wasn't learned. I didn't learn about the afferent component of the of the vagus. I didn't know anything about that till ten years ago, and that's eighty percent of the damn nerve. It's coming out in, out of the body to our brain. Yeah, and how about this whole enteric nervous system, this second brain? We probably have more than well, a second have, brain. We, we have like four or five of them, yeah, maybe. Yeah. And why is the sympathetic system constructed the way it is? Why is it along this with those nuclei along the spinal? Why? Why yeah. is it like that? Oh well, you can you can the the you know the way the professors are explaining. I was like, well, that's what they're processing the x you know the sympathetic output. Yeah, yeah. 
it exists. Why does it exist like that? They just say it exists because it exists. And uh, I don't I don't understand that. I think we need to understand why it exists like that and then what the hell is going on over our stomach and over our chest. And we have no idea. We yeah. know kind of know what goes on in the brain with it a little bit. Kind of. But yeah. we're pretty brain-centric. Yeah, yeah. Right. Get ready to turn out for the dance room on Podcast One. Join renowned veteran dancers and choreographers Heather Morris from Glee and Ava Flav as they share their onstage stories, chat with guests, and recap all your favorite TV dance shows. Download new episodes of The Dance Room every week on Apple Podcast and Podcast One. BlueChew.com, everybody. This offers men a... Well, this is the same thing you get from other medication like Viagra or Cialis, but you can get the first chewables. It has the same ingredients, as I said. It can work faster than the pills, but that's not really the issue. What's interesting about this is you can get an online physician consult for free, so there's less expense involved, and then you can get your medication. It only takes a few minutes. It's a technology for people that need these medication. BlueChew.com has affiliated physicians, and if you meet their criteria for needing the medication, you can quickly online get this prescription. It's just a layer of efficiency. There's no in-person doctor visit. And, you know, if it's something that you're uncomfortable with or you don't like having the pharmacy aware of this, I understand people are a little bit awkward about these issues. But you can get this stuff shipped directly to your door in discreet packaging. And again, this is a common need for men, particularly middle-aged and beyond. I've had a prostatectomy, so men that have prostate cancer. These are medically appropriate medication. And you can get them from BlueChew.com. Again, prescribed by online by a physician. And here's a great deal. Visit BlueChew.com and get your first order for free if you use the code DREW. It's ridiculous. Just pay the $5 shipping. So it's BlueChew.com. You meet with a physician and use the code DREW and you get that first order for free. That is B-L-U-E-C-H-E-W.com. Promo code DREW. True car. All right, 60 seconds. You know that's how long this is going to last. But you can do something in that minute. You can get an offer for your car with True Car. That's right. In these very short intervals, I mean, really, 60 seconds. Come on. You can get an offer for your car. That's it. You can do it from your smartphone, your home, your computer. You just go to True Car. Simply enter your license plate number. Watch your car's details come on up. Answer some questions. And then you get a True Cash offer from a True Car local certified dealer. And it's that easy. You just show up and you go out with your check if that's what you want to do. Bring your car in. Let them check it out. Ask some questions. No surprises. That's it. You get in 60 seconds that offer. You go bring your car in. You walk out with your check. It is that simple. Or if you want to trade your car in, you can lock in a true price. You know it's a true price because it includes fees and accessories. Look at that scattergram of true car for what the car is worth and what people are paying in your area. So you get informed and you lock in that true price and you know it's for an actual vehicle on that true car certified dealer's lot. Of course, you know it's fair because you see what people are paying. You know you got a fair price. Then when you get your true cash offer, you head on to the true car certified dealer and drive off with your new car. Well, it could be a used car as well. Don't forget, True Car is new and used. So when you are ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today. Do you think there's, this is my big question, is if there's a receptive element in our peripheral autonomic system in our body. Because sometimes it feels like it. Yeah, well, where did that saying gut feeling come from? Well, but the gut, but my question is, for sure, it got fe- and, but but is the gut receiving something from the outside world, or is it the brain somehow reflecting in the gut, which is I think how we've always thought about it? Yeah, I think, I feel like there's something weirdly receptive in our body. Yeah, and I think we're again pretty brain centric yeah, here, and I yeah. think the the two are absolutely related to each other. And 
you know, there's this back to the interoceptive awareness piece. Yeah. There's a whole lot that we're not actually paying attention to that has to do with us really sensing stuff in our body. You know, we privilege vision actually way more than anything else. Yeah. And we're missing out on so much of, of all these other processes and, and abilities to really pay attention and, and receive information, but I, we're just not paying attention. But, to but that. you, you nicely put in there, receive information. I don't think most academics f- have faith that there's anything received other than our bodily function, which is sort of embedded in the world. And if someone punched us in the stomach, we'd have a feeling. But I don't think they've – the rest of it, that more intuitive element, I don't think there's faith in that out there yet. Well, you know, to really be a scientist, we have to be have open to, to being wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And in, in, do you make much of right brain, left brain sorts of functional differences now? I mean, there's some clear ones like language and things yeah, like that. Yeah. But I think some of the others that people got really excited about uh, have not you know, stood the test of time. And uh, you know, I think the dichotomy around you know, zooming in versus having this holistic view is probably the one that's been um, – that's borne the t- test of time most in terms of right and left brain. Still Phil holds. The right is more holistic and left is yeah. a little more segmented or whatever. That yeah. Is. Um, uh, what What is your research these days? What are you preoccupied with? We're really, you know, we've been, we spent 20 years really trying to understand how habits form. And then we've spent, you know, the last 10 years really trying to zoom in on how we can very, very specifically target those. And again, how to unhabit things, how to unhabit things and move beyond the willpower myth. Is there a, a again, I'm sure we can get all this at drjud.com. Yes. D-R-J-U-D.com. Is, is there a world where we start to focus on ha- good habits? I mean, Aristotle pointed that out thousands of years ago. He that, did. That character is about repetitive habits. Do, are you involved with that at all? That sort of a, interests me these days. Yeah, you know, if we really understand the brain, and if we really understand how our habits work, this knowledge can ge- generalize. And this is actually what we see with a lot of folks in our in our programs, whether it's our eating, you know, our eat right now program, our unwinding anxiety program, even in our uh, craving to quit program for smoking. We're seeing that people are really um, they get how their mind works and they see, okay, I can let go of this old habit, but they start to see things like connection, kindness, generosity actually feel good in themselves. And this is where, you know, the the Aristotle notion of of character, you know, back then they also talked about eudaimonia, Mm -hmm. which is this this peace and equanimity that comes with simply being truly connected and not, um, not caught up in our own, you know, personal view of the world. And we can see, you know, when when I'm when we're totally just into having a relationship, or really just even having a good uh, connection through a, a conversation, it feels great. But if we don't know how that works, we're just our brain's going to be like, "Well, that was fun. Well, I should what, do what that was again." That? Yeah. yeah. Well, how did I do that? Yeah. But if we say, "Okay, well, let's line this up. What, yeah. what did you just do? What was the result of what you did?" And we can help people really zoom in on, you know, was it was there a closed quality or an open quality? And that close quality, which lines up with craving, which lines up with disconnection, you know, rumination, anything when we're regretting the past, worrying about the future, all that stuff leads to, to this closed down quality of experience. 
we can help people see what leads to that so that they're, they get less excited to do that and then they stop doing those things. And we can also help them see the opposite. So when they're connected with somebody, when they actually put down their phone and have a conversation with somebody. Good luck. Yeah, I know. Well, I think we can actually hack that. We can actually tap into that process and help people see that much more clearly. And then they're going to naturally, their brain is just going to naturally incline in that direction because it feels better. Yeah, uh, this this hedonic versus eudaimonic happiness is sort of so we've lost we've lost track in this country of what happiness is. Yeah, and I think we can get it back. I absolutely think we can get it back. You know, whether it's with with these apps as a way to give people you know a tangible way uh, to do this, and you know, it's really interesting. I was in my clinic. It's like, well, I can help one person. I can help a couple of folks, but then we really wanted to step back and say, how can we help people on a population level? And one thing I was realized was that people don't learn to stress eat in my office. They don't learn to smoke in my office. So could I actually take my office to them? And that's when we started looking at developing digital therapeutics, these app-based the trainings. App. Mm-hmm. And, and do you have studies now showing the efficacy of these of the apps? Or yeah. Our, coming? our Eat Right Now program, we published a 2017 study showing that we got 40% reduction in craving-related eating. Mm. Uh, we, got, we did a study with anxious physicians. <laughs> Welcome. Yeah, I know. It was one of the easiest studies we ever I was going to say, are there any that aren't? Yeah. (laughs) You get some of the surgeons. (laughs) Yeah, they're just in denial. Right. Um, Close to a 60% reduction in GAD7 scores, these generalized anxiety disorder 7 questionnaires. In what what period of time? uh, Three months. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And we just finished a neuroimaging study with our Craving to Quit program where we could scan people's brains at baseline who are trying to quit smoking, randomize them to get our Craving to Quit program or the National Cancer Institute's app, scan them a month later and find that mindfulness training directly changed their brain mechanisms, which directly led to clinical outcomes in terms of reduction in smoking. Nothing in the control group. So in psychiatry generally and for sure in addiction and these kinds of behaviors – uh, one of my grave concerns is the timeline of research. I mean, it never goes more than about six months. Uh, I mean, rarely. Do you have stuff that they come back in three, five years? Are you planning anything like that to see where they are? Those studies are pretty hard to do. I so know. a lot of a well, lot. Just of- assume loss to follow up is using. That's the one thing they never do in research. They're like, well, I lost a follow-up. It's like, yeah, they're relapsed. I guarantee it. Yeah. <laughs> Mo- like- most well, – a lot of folks, that is the case and, and a lot of research is moving in that direction where that, that's a very conservative way to look at the research. Yeah. With smoking in particular, uh, people have found that six months equals a year equals two years. And so, with smoking, yeah. yeah if somebody's quit and, <clears throat> and with eating, for example, about 12 months is a pretty good indicator if somebody's going to keep the weight off. Are you are you sharing some of your stuff with some of the other big leaders in the addiction field like John Kelly and Humphreys and those guys? Is, are they interested in all this? Yeah, John Kelly in particular. Yeah. We were just speaking at a conference together a little while ago. Um, and it's really interesting to see the connection between like 12 Steps programs, for example. It is and some some of this stuff is very, very similar. It's not mm-hmm. as explicit. So it, it – well, as such, the patients may not be as motivated to follow what's being said because they may not have – they made a deeper understanding of why that stuff's being asked of them. Yeah, and I think this is where mindfulness can actually work pretty well with some of these programs. Like first, oh, for sure. first step is I, you know, I don't have control. Well, <laughs> this look, just look at any diet program that says you failed willpower versus it failing you. Mm-hmm. You know, so the more we we surrender and let go of that, the more we can actually start to step back and say, well, how does my brain and so my mind actually the work? Whole thing. Yeah, and and the addicts are. Afraid to surrender. 
Or, they are, or, they, or they're using doesn't want them to. Yeah. You know what I mean, the motivational state they're in. Who's not afraid of surrender? We have yeah. to actually open up and be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a natural protective mechanism that we have to work with. Uh, Do you have any tips for getting people through that? You know, I think uh, a lot of people talk about hitting rock bottom, and I think then they're easy. <laughs> yeah, I know, but that's where they're like, well, I, you know, everything else failed. Yeah. So one, th- I don't think we need to we need to absolutely hit rock bottom for yeah. that. But one way to help people start to see this is just in in momentary, you know, in their daily lives. Where is it? Where's a moment where I've resisted something, or where's a moment where I've really put up a wall? And can I look to see is that actually making things worse or better? And that then, you know, as they start to learn how their minds work, then they can see how that generalizes uh, to these other pieces where it's like, wow, you know, forcing things didn't help here. It didn't help here. It didn't help here. Wait a minute. I see a pattern. Hmm. And then they actually open to seeing, oh, maybe there's a different way. I think a lot of people do CBT kind of this way in addiction setting. They they're, they're kind of look at the same stuff. I don't know if they know that's what they're doing, but yeah, it's an interesting piece. They they I think they're intuitively moving in exactly, that direction. Exactly. And I'd love to see you know CBT. There's a lot of this piece. You know, catch it, check it, change it. Well, you know, prefrontal cortex, which is where CBT seems to be working, is the weakest part of our brain from an evolutionary perspective. And so it's, we can't really rely on that piece to help us when we're stressed or when we're anxious or when you know, all these things that, that precipitate relapse. So the piece there is to say, can we actually step back and instead of trying to change something, really tap in and let our brain change it for us? Well, I – my in- instinct has always been that that is able to happen because of the connection that they get through yep. CBT, and it may it may be just the empathic attunement that's more impactful than the actual. Well, people have shown that that's really really important as yeah. well, yeah. and I think we can also have attunement with ourselves. You know, because mm-hmm. we're often we distance ourselves from ourselves. We, we go to these things to numb ourselves, um, not feel our bodies. You know, live you know a short distance from our bodies, mm-hmm. so to speak. And that's actually where some of these awareness practices can help as well. Does trauma get uh, managed through all this stuff too? Or there's a lot of work being done with mindfulness in in trauma, like trauma informed mindfulness. Yeah. A lot of people, well, as you know, a lot of people start using because of trauma history. So common, yeah, uh, and. and does that interest you? Is that area of research, or is that? It's absolutely interesting. I think it's a yeah. critical piece to look at. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I just think that it's so common right now. Are we are we in a epidemic of this, or has it always been common in humans? I I, I think can't figure it out. Yeah, my sense is that people are just reporting and looking more. You know, it's what was, and living longer with it, probably. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and people. You know, I, I imagine trauma in the past. Oh, I've got a question for you. Maybe I don't know if you're, it comes into your stuff at all, but I've always been wondering about repetition, uh, traumatic reenactments. Uh, mm-hmm. That there's this uncanny thing that people do. They and and to me, the reenactments are usually based on attraction. The people, their motivational states more mm-hmm. than anything. People just for people who are listening. If you had an abusive alcoholic father, you might find yourself magically attracted to abusive alcoholic men. If you're a woman, or vice versa, or male, and and you think if we, from an evolutionary point point of view, we would do the opposite. We'd avoid the guys, the, the, particularly if that person traumatized us, and we'd avoid that. But we don't. We're right. actually, and it's not like 
and people always go, oh, it's because it's familiar. I, that is, that is a flimsy. That is a flimsy explanation, especially when attraction is is linked into it. I mean, they're they they can spot these people across the room and are drawn to them. Yeah, yeah. Let's dive into that more. So, yeah. if you the brain is actually a prediction machine. It is trying to predict the future. And well, the, somebody I heard saw somebody recently say that that's what they think memory is. That memory is in a, yep. a, a sort of a projecting forward by kind of encoding the past. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the future is totally dependent on memory. Without yeah. memory, it's hard to it's hard to make any any sense in, in predictions for the future. Yeah. So our brains are doing their best to help us have a stable relationship with the future, saying, "I know exactly what's going to happen," and they would they would prefer certainty over something that is quote-unquote, better. Yeah. And so the brain's going to say, okay, I know exactly how this is going to go. And there's this quality of reinforcement that says, I would rather know how it goes than not know how it goes. But I would rather, I would say this more explicitly, I want. Because there's a motivation yeah. to it. I, yeah, yeah. I want that again. And, and, there's, and it's almost like there's a map, there's some sort of mapping that we're sort of stepping into. Does that make sense? I'll say more about that. I'm not sure I know what I'm talking about really. It's it's almost like much the way we're saying that encoded memory is a way of predicting the future. It's like there there is with that abusive alcoholic father is there's a whole story narrative mapping almost of what's coming with that that I want. That and and it may be attached to something we call love, whatever that is. If you're ready to tackle that, <laughs> that that sort of that's what we want is that again. Well, it's interesting. So let's go there with yeah. love. Uh, there's been a fair amount of research now where we can actually disentangle romantic love from stable, uh, more like eudaimonic love. Right. So that's anti-singular, right? Isn't it later phases of love? Uh, some. The the work that's most consistently been found is around – so n- nucleus accumbens get a- gets activated. Right. Do that again. Right. And Yet, that may be the whole thing. Just do that again. Well, I think there's more nuance to that. Okay. So there, some folks have found that actually there's a default mode network, this self-referential network uh, that is involved in terms of not only early stage romantic love, but also in obsessive love. So even in- Tell them what the default mode network is. Yeah, it's a, it's a network involved in self-referential processing. Basically, you know, when we're lost in the past, when we're worried about the future, when we're craving drugs, when we're, um, when we're ruminating, when we're perseverating, basically anytime we get caught up in our experience as it relates to, you know, me, that network gets activated. Is it fear-based? Uh, it's I wouldn't it's uh, it can be related to fear. Uh-huh. So for example, fear leads to this contraction. Yes. Right? And so that contracted quality, we've actually mapped that in my lab, that contracted quality activates the posterior cingulate cortex, one of the main hubs of the default mode network. Interestingly, we found that that same brain region gets quiet in experienced meditators. Because it gets quiet when people are being curious, for example. I talked to Antonio Damasio and he mm. said that's what's most thoroughly knocked out during de- Alzheimer's dementia. Yeah, I know. It's this, this paradox, the, the cosmic joke that the more we think about ourselves, the more likely we are to forget who we are <laughs> later in life. So crazy. I know. So higher anxiety is associated with Alzheimer's that – or. More so, more metabolic activity has been associated, and there have been some indirect links with anxiety leading to uh, leading to Alzheimer's or predisposing folks to Alzheimer's as well. I'm in. So, right, <laughs> and then the more we start worrying that we're going to get Alzheimer's, the more that's just going to make it worse. He, he was saying he was saying that it was a few years ago I talked to him. He really felt that posterior cingulate 
you're talking about yeah. is where the self like resided. Yeah. So there's my, my labs actually separate. So there are two main hubs of the Faultman network. The posterior cingulate's one of them. And then there's this medial prefrontal cortex. And my lab and others have, have really parsed this out a bit where the medial prefrontal cortex seems to be involved in the conceptual sense of self. You know, so I get up, look in the mirror and say, oh, yeah, that's Judd. But the experiential quality to that that says, you know, if I'm like, oh, my hair's going great and I contract around that. That's the experiential self. And we've actually mapped that using – That's neuro- posterior cortex. That's posterior cingulate cortex. Experiential self. That's an interesting thing to get your head around. Yeah. So from a let, – let's use a concrete example. So, I, you know, if somebody says, oh, you know, your podcast sucks and you're like, what? Yeah. Ah, ouch. <laughs> That's – an experience that says, okay, this is me, and then outside of that contraction is the rest of the world. Uh. So when we practice mindfulness, for example, we can start to see, oh, there's that contracted quality of experience. What does that lead – You know, how's that, how's that going for you basically? Right. How's that working out? So we start to see the, that is less exciting, but we can also bring in awareness and kindness and connection in that moment and start to move from that contracted state to a more open state. And as we move and move and move in that direction, we start to lose a sense of you know, our boundary and where, where we end and where the rest of the world begins. And, and so to that – and I've noticed, and if this fits with that story you've just told, that people that are grateful and forgiving are usually doing pretty damn well. Yeah. So w- what is – you know, well, gratitude is not a contracted state. It's more of an open, open state. state. Yeah. Same for generosity. It's not a contracted state. It's an open state. As, as long as it's true, pure generosity. It's not like I'm going to do this so I get something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's, That's more like wanting. Right. It's Again, back in recovery – teaching that and, and being the object of it too is something you have to learn how to do. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well that, that brings in vulnerability. Mm-hmm. So here, you know, I love this idea that vulnerability, it's strength because if we let go of this protective, you know, armor that we put up, you know, like healthcare providers, you know, as we learn in medical school in residency, like you got to armor up, you know, got to be tough. Don't show weakness and all this stuff. Well, that is actually where we're seeing burnout. And I think because it's, it's a lot of work to protect ourselves. And There's a lot of stuff coming at you. <laughs> there is a lot of stuff coming at us. Well, so we could do two things. One is we could put up the armor to protect ourselves. Mm. Or two, we could start to see through you know, this, this self-protective mechanism and open ourselves to being vulnerable and realize, you know what? I don't actually have to take any of this stuff personally. And when we realize, oh, I don't have to take this personally, there's this huge burden lifted Psychiatric patients are pretty good at getting under your skin. They are, but They're, if we know how the mind works, it's harder I, to do. You're right, truly. And, you know, I learned this firsthand working with folks with borderline personality. Well, I was going to. I'm just going to say, projective <laughs> identification. They are. They're better. They're just geniuses. They're in that. brilliant. Oh my god, they I, are brilliant. I. I. It's going to sound weird, but. Um, my head nurse used to always – she'd go like this. She'd make like my favorite Martian antennas on her head because yeah. the borderlines seemed to know when I walked onto the campus. Yeah. block Two blocks away. Yeah, they're, they're sensing fresh meat. <laughs> so good. They're so good. Yeah. But anyway, so they're, it's a better foe than I, you know what I mean, in terms of protecting myself. Protective identification is essentially – People putting their yucky feelings into you, essentially, yeah. and and you catch them. You, 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 it's hard not to. Well, for me, that was that was one of the big enigmas. It's like, what the 
hell is going What's on happening? Here? Yeah, yeah. And when I really started working with with these folks, it, it you have to do it a lot to understand to get a your feet under you. Yeah. You yeah. know what I realized as I looked at, cause it was like, I had to memorize the criteria cause I could just couldn't wrap my head around it. For and then I, just remember what you feel like. <laughs> That's all you got to remember. Just remember what it feels like. When yeah, you totally. In the room. Which is, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. I just got stabbed 12 yeah. times yeah. and I don't even know who, what, who did why, it. Why that happened. Yeah. So if we look at this from a reward-based learning perspective, it's it's really interesting. I wrote a part of a chapter on this, and we even published a scientific paper on this, where if you look at intermittent reinforcement with reinforcing le- reinforcement learning, yeah. if you look at the criteria, so there's an unstable sense of self, and they're doing all these things like um, in borderline, yeah, yeah, in borderline. So and by the way, we're, we're being we're we're using humor. We're not being disdainful of people. Boy, they suffer. Believe me, oh, they suffer. And I was, as much or more than most people yeah, that I know. Yeah, yeah, And so this is not to make little of that disorder. It's a serious thing. Oh, if anything, it's just to laugh at myself in terms of how much I got dragged into it. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, for, and, and, fool, and by the way, and we're both laughing ourselves probably earlier in our career where we would get sucked in and spun around in ways that we shouldn't have been. If we were more skilled. If we were – well, yeah. and that's where I learned yeah. a whole lot from this. So if you yeah. look at, at people with borderline personality disorder, unfortunately, a lot of them have had a childhood trauma history. Of course. So if you think of the parent who's uh, alcoholic walking through the door, the kid doesn't know whether mom or dad is going to love them or hit them. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, their, their, their spidey senses are up. And they're having this completely unstable childhood. So they get intermittently reinforced. And so they never develop a stable sense of self. Mm-hmm. And so they're, you know, that, that part of them is jacked up just trying to find some stable thing to hold on to. And as they do that more and more and more, you know, they realize, well, they don't realize, but it, subconsciously there isn't really anything to hold on to, especially, you know, when, when somebody gets idealized. So, you know, they idealize somebody trying to get that stable, you know, stable bond. And then somebody says, wow, this is weird. I'm leaving. And then. Well, it's, but they precipitate it sometimes, which is back to those re- reinforcing reward maps or whatever we're calling them. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So if you, if you bring all this together, there actually is a pretty good model if you look at reinforcement learning and, and especially pay attention to the pieces related to the intermittent reinforcement, which we now know is the most reinforcing type of learning. Basically, it's like it's, it's how the slot machines work. You know, you don't win every time. Right. Otherwise, the casinos wouldn't. Or what did um, Skinner have, the case of the superstitious pigeon? Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It was, was a pigeon. That they'd have the, he had his pigeons, he had the Skinner boxes, and they would get reinforced. They'd send down some corn pellets or something. But this one pigeon, they just send down randomly. Just the, and the pigeon developed all these elaborate behaviors because the pigeon thought, in quotes, that these all these elaborate behaviors are what caused the corn to come down when it was just completely random. Yep. Yep. That's thus. That's where our superstition maybe comes from. Yes. Some of it. So if we can understand that. So for example, when I started to understand that, instead of following the rule, for example, working with my patients with borderline personality disorder, mm-hmm. instead of you know, there's this rule like don't let your visits go long. Make sure you start them on time. You know, do all this stuff. And I was like, okay, what's? I don't know why I'm doing this, but yeah. I'm doing it. Realized it's helping them, even in very little ways, start to form some stability. Structure, yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. that structure helps develop a stable sense of self, even if it's as simple as we're stopping 
our session at 50 minutes every time. You know, it doesn't matter how much you're kicking. Your screen you're the worst doctor ever. Yeah. I need another 10 minutes. I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> and so the, so if we don't worry about protecting ourselves, mm-hmm. right? If we don't take that personally, we can actually, that it's limitless to be able to, to take that. And this is where we can move from empathy to compassion. You know, I, I wrote a chapter about this in my book where, you know, I this think is in uh, the craving mind. The craving mind, yeah. yeah. So we can move from you know using the example of healthcare providers because that's what I know most <laughs> from personal experience. We get you know if we're supposed to put ourselves in our patient's shoes and our patients are suffering, then ipso facto we're going to be suffering quite a bit. Mm. We're going to be taking a lot of stuff personally. If we realize that we don't have to take things personally, that we can actually, you know, not have to bring all this energy to self-protection, if we let go of that, it frees up all this energy to be with our patients and to be with their suffering without taking it personally. It, 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 hearing you talk about that re- reminds me – I'm an internist by training mm-hmm. and, and we are given none of this in our training. Really? Yeah. I, I Even as a psychiatrist, I wasn't yeah. given this right. stuff. Right. <laughs> and it came late for me. It was not late. It came, you know, as a result of working in a psychiatric setting. And um, and we got to find a way to communicate that to our peers a little bit. I think it's where we're really losing ground. And it's not it's not that difficult. It's, it's not. It's not. It's. It's. You know what I mean. It's not challenging intellectually. It's just it requires diligence and practice and. Motivation. Well, I'm I'm glad you say that because a lot of people, I think, especially because physicians are you know are really burnt out. In our study, my, my research assistant just calculated the average age of the people that joined our study. Ready for this? Forty five. Hmm. So folks are burnt out mid career. You know, they'd only been in practice like you know twelve or eighteen years, oh, yeah. not a very long time. Oh yeah, it's easy to burn out right then. So I actually put together you know just a free CME course for physicians and for any healthcare providers that really just want to understand the basics of this role-based learning system because I didn't learn it in residency training and we specific focus, specifically focused two modules on burnout and developing resilience because like you're talking about, the, the principles are pretty simple. We just have to understand the basics of them and then we can start to apply them to not only helping our patients overcome bad habits but help us become more resilient. Yeah, I, and, and the way it kind of manifests this burnout I've noticed in my peer age was everyone started jumping into sort of administrative, just other jobs. They just couldn't do the clinical stuff anymore. Yeah. It just was like, ah, eh, it's the younger guy's game, younger women's game. It's, and, that's really too bad because that's in, when we're in, – in, in primary care especially. Well, that's where the wisdom comes in. Like I you, know. You've seen – it's not just, okay, I learned this in, in medical school and residency, but we're like, no, you know, there's a nuance here that you don't learn in residency. I, I just call it – I just smell it. it <laughs> like Literally, it's like an olfactory that's so deep and so – I can trust it so much yeah. when you have this kind of experience. Yeah. yeah. So these are the folks we want to keep in healthcare as long as possible and help them realize. We're not moving in that direction. We're, we, we're, in fact, we're taking that group and putting them a step back and putting a bunch of extenders in front of them. I know because we don't realize you – know, that's like this, this quick fix solution mm-hmm. as compared to stepping back and realizing we actually might know enough that we've got a solution that's more tenable and going to help everybody in the long run. It's not that hard to do. But I agree with you. We're right now with this quick fix mentality that the the systems have. It's it's we've got to realize that that quick fix, the next quick fix, the next quick fix is just band aids upon band aids. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure I would call it even quick fix. Well, that's it's, a, it's just a, a 
it's a car wash like mentality. Uh, yeah. And and I'm yeah. not sure they expect to be fixed. It's just they want to be done with it. <laughs> it's like the Well the yeah. system's saying, okay, somebody's burnt out, we need to fill them in. So we yeah. put in these extenders. Yeah, so that's yeah. where I'm looking at that band aid. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I like the car wash analogy. I think that works. Because well. it's always like put me through it and get me fix me and that's it. It's all done. And <laughs> if only if only life worked that oh, way. Oh my god, wouldn't that be great? Um and so if people are interested in this, let's let's say you don't have anxiety, but you're just interested in the topic we, we've been talking about. Would the Craving Mind be the best place to go? Craving Mind's good. We've also put together some resources on my website, drjud.com. You know, everything from animations where people can actually learn how the mind works through. You know, we have this one on everyday addictions, so people can learn nice. you know, why we get this from shopping to smartphones to hardcore addictions. And then for healthcare providers, we have this free course uh, where people can just really start to learn the basics of their mind. And of course, if they want, they can read my book. Also, Twitter at Judd Brewer, B-R-E-W-E-R. Instagram at dr. Period Judd, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, do you, is this educational, These the social media? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's how I spend most of that time. So I'm going to follow on that on those fronts. Uh, and and as you go forward, what's is there something preoccupying you now, anything worrying you as you look at the world? From the perspective you now have, just curious. <laughs> I guess I'm sort of asking more a philosophy question now that we're yeah worked I'm, with the brain. I'm worried that we're losing the ability to think. I, I think as humans, that's one of our most beautiful and precious uh, resources: is this ability to wonder and to think and to rest in awe, and to just go out in nature and not be doing something did, did now thinking is a, a lot of things <laughs> uh, and, and were you always a thoughtful thinker or did that something come through your training i th- i've always been one that's been fascinated with how the world works and i love to just understand things and i think as i went through life you know i would I would go out in nature and go on backpacking trips mm-hmm. and just love to just to rest in nature. And I started so, getting into meditation to just really rest in being rather than doing. So when you say you're we're losing the capacity to think, because here's my, from my personal experience, I was sort of a lazy thinker until I went to college. And then it just it like turned on. Mm-hmm. It, it, it became I went I got my ass handed to me in my <laughs> collegiate training and it was good. But I was not a great thinker before that. Is that the kind of thinking, like analytical, careful, objective thought you're talking about? No, I think it's more the creative uh, where we're, we just need time to let our mind do its thing mm-hmm. as compared to let me solve a problem. You know, great. If we can put away our Twitter and our cell phones for 10 minutes, we can, ju- you know, we can solve most of those, those things relatively in a straightforward manner. What I'm talking about is that making those deeper connections that only our brain is good at doing when we're out of our own way. Would it also include like reading fiction and that kind of thing? Sort of? I think those are always yeah. you know, great ways to kind of let our brains cook in, in information and, yeah. and just you know, f- reading good stories helps our brains practice like just imagining things. Yes, that's what it seems. And we don't do much of that anymore. Well, we're constantly, you know, we read for five minutes yeah. and then our brain says, that's oh, it. I got to check my social media. And then yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's bing, 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 bing on the reward system. Yeah. If you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? I can't think of anything more important than yeah. helping people. Yeah. So honestly, it's a hard, it's not necessarily. It's kind of a loaded question. I get that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry. Well, listen, I, I really appreciate you sharing with me because this all stuff I'm fascinated by. I'm, I'm a 
maybe just a smidge above a dilettante, but not much. And so I really appreciate your expertise and bringing it all here. I'm going to read the book. I, I'm preoccupied with all this stuff right now just because it's just – I'm interested in the human experience like you are. And I think we're just – we're getting close to some really interesting stuff right now. We are getting really yeah. close. And I think the pieces you know, where we're starting to see these clear links and we're and, you know, seeing significant results. I mean you know, 40% reduction in craving-related eating. Crazy. You know, so that's pointing to something that people are going to really have to take notice. Is, is there a name for this? Is Behavioral psychiatry? Is it neurobehavioral psychiatry? How do, uh, is there a name? I think we can put lots of names on it. But it doesn't really – doesn't. there's no field of this. I think, you know, behavioral – well, I mean behavioral neuroscience, um, behavioral yeah. psychiatry I think is a good way to put it as compared to pharmacologic psychiatry. I mean but – well, but, but, but behaviorism has a nefarious sort of – well, it certainly has a history, history yeah. where it and it hasn't been a great history. Right, right. Uh, so I think this feels disconnected from that. It feels like something new because it's so brain based. It is very brain based, but some of the basic learning processes, you know, I, we the can't paradigm ig- is similar. Yeah, we can't ignore the things that Skinner discovered. Yeah, um, and in fact, if you look at it, the ancient Buddhist psychologist discovered way these things way before he did. It, so. it, it all overlaps. Yeah. the stuff that works works. Yeah, and they're just can we do it better? Is the question absolutely? And I think so. we can. We can even start to personalize this as we start to bring in you know these personal dynamics and you know it, does this work in particularly well for you know this person or this person. We, we even see this with our app-based training. We have enough data now where we can actually do some of this deep learning and look to see, can we personalize this for this person or this person? It's almost like oncology where it's personalized, individualized. Yes. And Very I think, interesting. I think behaviorally, we need to hold ourselves to those same standards. You know, sure. With oncology, they've moved from you know blow up your cancer before you blow up your body. And I think we can get that personalized with behavioral training as well as we get better and better at understanding the mind. So go to drjud.com, Unwinding Anxiety app, eating... Eat right now. Eat right now. And uh, The Craving Mind. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. We'll see you next time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Thank you.